and welcome to National Leprechaun Museum Talking Stories, the podcast from the National Leprechaun Museum here in Dublin, all about Irish folklore, mythology and culture through storytelling. I'm Eleanor as always, and today I'm joined by the director of the National Leprechaun Museum, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hey, Eleanor. How's it going? It's going really well. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, of course. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. It's been a while since you've been on the podcast, actually. It is, I think. I can't remember the last time I was here. Well, myself and Poddy got to hear one of your stories about St. Brendan and his voyage. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. Uh, some uh, greatest hits from that voyage back in May. And then the last time you were here co-hosting was with me back in December. Wow, actually, yeah. okay. So I'm a, I'm a rare avis, a rare bird. Okay. <laughs> and it makes it all the nicer when we do get to have you for a Great. chat. Speaking of which, I wanted to ask you, you've been doing some uh, workshops with people outside the museum on uh, teaching the, the art and the craft of storytelling. And I don't want to get too much into, into those, but I wanted to ask you, what is it like to actually try and teach storytelling? Um, because it's not like teaching public speaking, although there's a bit of that. And it's not like, not like teaching, say, creative writing either, although there's a bit of that as well. What's that like? Uh, it's really interesting. And I think uh, the people we were talking to were people on the Erasmus Plus program. Mm. Um, and it was about getting messages across to people. Okay. Um, and using stories to do that and storytelling to do that mm. and I guess the most important part is what's the story you want to tell people mm. and why would they want to hear it because it's not what you're saying it's what they're hearing that's important mm. and how do you know it's working how do you know they're listening how do you know what they're hearing um, so that's the really important parts and we all have um or what I like to call our, our imaginative backpack, like Dora, and the stuff in it. And you can only tell people uh, stuff that relates to the stuff they already know. Mm. So you're trying to lever that leverage on that and getting them to use their imaginations to put themselves into the story. And I guess one of the pieces of information we left with people is, when you've told a story, what do you think that person's going to say to the next person they meet? Mm. What have they taken away from it? And how did they tell it? And you really want to be telling them the stories that they feel they want to tell somebody else. So that's the important part. And it is a craft. You do get better at it by practicing. There's no two ways about it. And it's what people do every day is tell stories. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are true. Um, some of them are factual. But they're all about telling people a point of view. Mm-hmm. And sharing that and letting them share that with other people. That's the important thing. Fantastic. Storytelling has become such a, I guess, a buzzword in recent years. It's used to describe anything and everything creative or anything to do with marketing. Um, But in terms of trying to, in in terms of meeting the goal of of how do we get across a point of view, um, it's great that they were able to, that they thought of of pulling in actual storytellers. Well, this is oral storytelling, and yes. it's unmediated. So it's just you um, listening or telling mm-hmm. and the, and your counterparty. So it's conversational. It's mm-hmm. a two-way street. And one of the things we do know is that oral storytelling is the most effective way of communicating with other people. Um, and it's not reading from a book. It's actually telling someone a story, looking at them. And there are mirror neurons firing. 
there's we know there's fMRI studies done that show there's more brain activity in people who are listening to someone telling a story to them. Wow. So it's more effective, bigger learns, more engagement. Um, and so we go, well, that's really important. People have done this for thousands of years. It's probably the oldest form of art. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know, and our brains are just conditioned for stories. We're hyper-social animals. And this is the way we make sense of the world. And a lot of times things happen, and then we build a story to fit the facts. Yes. Um, a lot of times we make decisions in the spur of the moment and then we try to get a narrative to fit those facts. So we're geared up for that. We're emotionally driven beings. And then the stories help us to feel good or bad about the things that have happened. You said that when you were facilitating the workshops, one of the things you were thinking about uh, for each individual involved was how when you were finished and you finished telling them these stories as part of it, um, what they would what they would do with it all afterwards and how would they describe to the next person and what they think to, to tell a story that they've heard and how would they do it. Um, and obviously you're um, a big advocate for Irish folklore and mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and Poddy were talking in a recent video um, about when say the the late 19th early 20th century these writers went out to the countryside and they um they gathered all these stories from local people all the folklore um and then they thought hmm i want to be able to sell this to to people in dublin and london and so on and and did what they thought necessary to the stories um and i was wondering um what are your thoughts on that sort of on trying to make say certain parts of Irish folklore or mythology or these stories more more palatable for a broader audience or should they be kept as I don't know if we could call them pure anymore in a sense because they've been told and retold so many times is that even possible anymore? So there's a couple of things going on so <laughs> yes. what, what I'm hearing from you is that look there was an attempt you know and certainly in from the 17th century onwards there was some storytelling as we move into print media then people are beginning to publish stories you know with the Brothers Graham producing mm-hmm. 1812 then I guess the one you might be referring to is um, is uh, Fairy, Fairy Legends of the South of Ireland that's uh, Thomas Crofton Kroger mm-hmm. 1815 um, so they're printed out uh, for consumption by a particular audience and in the case of Thomas Crofton Kroger that's uh, essentially a UK audience um, so the stories are managed for that audience so they're, they're consumable we were discussing the other day um, Hermione Templeton Kavanagh Darby mm-hmm. O'Gill and The Good People mm-hmm. and that was, man, that was mediated for uh, an American audience the difference between that and storytelling is oral storytelling um, is a live action thing uh, written words are the skeleton of language, mm. the bones of language. So you have to kind of reanimate them in your head, mm. and and this is why, as we just discussed, oral storytelling is more immediate and more engaging than it. That is not to say there aren't great. Of course, there's great books out there, and it's an engaging process, but it's not the same as a living, breathing storytelling. Mm. Um, and 
because we're we're managing that as a conversation with two people then the thing takes on a different uh, life and you're never going to hear this you can't step in the same river twice essentially is where we're at yeah because the story changes every time with different inflections and if people are leaning into a story or leaning back or nodding or not nodding then the teller is going to take those cues and adapt the story to that Mm. Exactly. That's one of the amazing things that that we experience here every day in the museum is that uh, we get to tell these stories to people who've heard them before, who are familiar or who are unfamiliar and um, get to get to see them react in real time. And then our storytellers get to to bounce off that. Yeah. And every experience is unique. Um, And then they get to buy books in the bookshop if they want. Um, When I find a story that I want to that I want to be able to tell. Um, because I'm not one of those people like, say, Mark, who you'd have heard on the podcast plenty of times, who can hear a story and then just start telling it. And it's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, uh, whether it's a story I've heard or a story I've read, um, I always start with like the images um, that, that popped up in my mind, like um, as, an, as an audience member or as a listener. Uh, having heard the story and then I have to try and figure out how to link them to each other and then also how to um, describe each image and whether to start with uh, things from like a sensory point of view how things are in in this image are are, are smelled or heard or, or or felt the rain or whatever or the dialogue and I think that's um that can change for each telling and that can change for each for each story. Sometimes you don't want to, in an, in an action scene, sometimes you do want to focus on the smell of the blood or the, the, the feeling of the, the, the grass beneath your feet. And then sometimes you want to get to the fact that, like, I don't know, all your favourite characters are being killed or whatever. Do you have a, a method for how you learn how to tell a story? Every... Uh, so... T- Every story is different. Yes. Um, and what I mean by that is the ones that, that appeal to me are the ones that hone in on one of those topics you've discussed. So sometimes it's about, like, um, um, what's his name's feast? Brickers? No, the hospitality of, um, oh my God, I can't remember his name now. So let's, it's okay. Um, uh, but what happens in, what happens in that story is well, so all of these things happen that are really extraordinary to Fionn McCool and his friends. Yeah. And at the end of it, the guy says, this is the gift I've given you to have knowledge without experience so that you can see how things work without having to go through the dangers of them. Wow. And in that story, that's the important thing. In the story about uh, um, how... Um, uh, nothing is everything that hasn't happened uh, about the girl being born out of, out of the darkness mm-hmm. and um, there's nothing there's a nothingness there and nothing is happening and it's just pure darkness no smell no sound no taste no sense of anything just complete darkness and then something fell in the darkness and as something fell she reached out her hand to stop herself from falling and grasped a piece of grass hanging off the side of the cliff and it came away in her hand. 
and it tells the story how she fell to earth and was born to people and she forgot everything beforehand until one day she's lying down in a field and there's the blue sky above her and the green grass around her and she takes a tuft of grass in her hand and smells it and then remembers that she was once nothing and part of everything and will return there once again. Wow. So sometimes those sense of smell makes that universal thing impossible. And there's other things that, like, every story has a quality to it. That makes sense. I think um, that's something that I always say to people when, like, whenever I used to have to, to train people to tell a story um, or or in writing or whatever, is to focus on the, 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 the sensory. That sounds like an amazing story. It's um, from a great book by a woman called Robin Wall Kimmerer, hmm. uh, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, and um, there's also something we did in the last FEST meeting we did, which was um, one of the people who ran a workshop there was uh, on Meersane, if I get that right in the German, and it was a sensory workshop in storytelling. Oh. Um, and they work with profoundly or profoundly disabled or um, with with people with multiple issues mm-hmm. who have difficulty accessing language but can still enjoy stories. Mm-hmm. And she tells this amazing episode where they brought all these things together, smell, touch, sound, um, and that for the first time the patient actually looked at the teller and smiled because someone had relation to them and they found they had a common ground with someone because language and our ability to manipulate language is at the core of being human. Um, And there are a number of of different ways we show that, Mm. but it's the key thing that makes, can you understand and manipulate language to make shared meaning? That's what makes us human. You mentioned FEST there, the the Federation of European Storytelling. Yeah. Go on. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you did. Full stop. (laughs) You mentioned FEST there, the Federation of European Storytelling, um, which many of our listeners mightn't know um, exists. It's a Europe-wide organisation dedicated to furthering um, the, the art and the cause of storytelling and a uh, community for storytellers. So it's the Federation of European Storytellers. Oh, excuse me. I'm well, so I know, but that's, it, it is about people. Um, and um, it's Europe-wide, and that goes down into Hungary, into Morocco. So it's essentially the Council of Europe kind of area and also mm-hmm. goes out to America and gathers everybody in. Um, and they have done things like produce programs for um What's the standard for storytelling? How do we get people up to professional standard for storytelling? Mm. Um, what are they looking for? Um, and it's it, it, unlike there's a, there's a large discussion in Europe that they lost the art of storytelling through World War One or World War Two. Oh, and that's something we didn't have here particularly. We had the emergency. Yeah, no, in Ireland we didn't feel it to that extent. Um, and so there was a there, they, they feel there was a there was a full stop at some point in in the art of European storytelling. Um, and so um, it, it's very much a way of trying to revive that, get it back. Um, there's a significant number of storytellers across Europe. I was talking to someone from Switzerland the other day, and their group was over 400 storytellers. Wow. Um, and uh, each canton in the area is very proud of their tradition. 
Uh, one of the issues they do have is the aging population of storytellers. Yes. Um, and what they what they love hearing from Ireland is the number of younger storytellers coming through, and that we have a an engaged um, community of tellers and listeners. Um, so that's that's really encouraging here. It is. It's really. Um, the usual age profile of storytellers here in the museum has always been people in their 20s and 30s. Um, and yet, even here in Ireland, when most people picture a, a storyteller or a Shannon Key, that image might be uh, of someone quite a bit older. There's this image in people's heads. I was reading um, Tim Robinson's book yesterday, and he was mentioning some chap who was grizzled and uh, had a pipe hanging out of his mouth and that people would stop their cars to get a picture of him <laughs> in, in the Connemara landscape uh, because that typified for them the kind of character of Connemara. Of Connemara. Yeah. And we also know that a lot of stories would begin, uh, this is a story I heard from my uncle. Yeah. So we would make it familiar and yet removed at the same time. One where we could, we because an uncle is a kind of an abstraction for us. Mm-hmm. If it's a parent, then we have a particular view on our parent. Mm-hmm. But an uncle could be any one of a number of people. Yes. Um, so um, they're, they're important, um, how would you describe them? Uh, tropes, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So what do you think then is Ireland and or the museum's place then in, in FEST, in European storytelling? Well, it was it was held here, um, I think, five or seven years ago. Um, so we do have a place in it, and a lot of the stories we have are, are um, uh, repeated into into Europe. So you'll get them being able to tell you, uh, um, you know, the Finn cycle stories. Yeah. People in Europe know those stories, and they have a great respect for the tradition of our storytelling. I think we trade, um, we, we kind of punch above our weight, mm. um, and also. Um, they probably think we're actually better than we are. <laughs> okay, so we, we don't do anything to dispel that, of course. No, of course not. Um, but you said, um, you mentioned that, that part of Fest's uh, work is to sort of encourage a, a, a younger or the next generation of storytellers. Yeah. Um, and as I said, you know, we've got one way of doing it here. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we're... I'd like to think you know that, that, that we're contributing to the, the next generation of storytellers in Ireland. Um, and what do you think then on a on a on a white on a wider scale or on a local scale uh, could be done to um, make sure that you know when the the I guess the current or older generation of of storytellers or storytelling um, is it eventually passes? Uh, what can be done to to carry on the tradition? And this is yeah. This is what it comes down to it's it's um, if the one thing that I would like when people come into the museum as parents or as um, people who who are potentially going to have children that they would tell their kids fairy tales at night at bedtime that they would make up stories they would tell their own story put their own spin on the stories um, and this becomes then a way of people enjoying storytelling. Uh, enjoying the oral engagement with people on storytelling and you know it leads to a whole lot of things like exploring areas of you know stuff comes up bubbles up to the surface in stories Mm -hmm. emotions are raised queries are raised what does that mean what would happen if 
So all of those things begin begin to be more important. And it's not something you're going to get on Netflix or Amazon Prime. You know, they're coded up, they're, they're dead objects. Yes. And, you know, um, a lot of the engagement we're involved with is very superficial. Um, The online stuff, you know, it is 2D. That's all it is. Uh, And it's highly colored and it's it's overstimulating. Mm -hmm. One of the things they talk about in children's books is how hot and cold the imagery is. Um, Because in the Goldilocks sense, when they have a picture book, the story and the pictures are meant to align together and they should be both the right temperature. If it's too cold, there's not enough information in the pictures. If it's too hot, there's too much and it's beginning to distract away from the story itself. So I think today, with all of the platforms we engage with, um, we're overstimulated as a community and we often find ourselves going around in circles and being slightly demotivated because we're overstimulated. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and because it, it's it's it is the it's it's the basic component of, of our lives, um, and the storyteller brings their experience, their voice, their physical voice, their physical self, and it's also about being present. It's about being there with somebody else in the moment, and like that's what we're all being told today: be present, be in the moment. And when you're hearing a story or engaging in a story as a listener or a teller, you're there. You're mm-hmm. really there. Mm-hmm. And we, we, I think a lot of people are finding those experiences where we're fully present with another person or more people, um, more and more valuable these days. And I think it's a. Uh, you shared a news story with me during the week, um, which I think really demonstrates how um, how hard some people in Europe, as you're saying, are, are fighting for um, the, the the practice of, of storytelling in this you know, very modern world, uh, which is of the small Spanish town with the tradition of um, sitting where everyone sits outside their front doors and chats and tells stories to each other. Um, sort of after a siesta, before night time really, and how someone in that town is trying to um, make that practice um, culturally protected by UNESCO. It's it's culturally significant. You know, um, if we gather together and discuss the day's happenings, we can form a community opinion on things, Mm -hmm. a consensus or, or a disagreement on things. And that's how we view the world. The... Uh, practices we engage with now are uh, not so much geography based but more interest based yeah um, and that that mitigates you know the physical turning up bit mm-hmm. um, and no matter how we try to create metaverses or virtual worlds it it cannot um, compete effectively with the actual presence of turning up mm-hmm. It's it's there are too many things going on um, yeah. for it to be captured uh, in 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 zeros and ones. Too many distractions, too many alternatives, too many things. If you're on um, a Zoom meeting or watching a live stream or something that you know that you you could be doing if you only opened a new tab. Everything, yeah, everything is possible, and then then mm-hmm. then, then nothing is 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 happening. Um, they say that we have 22 senses, not five. 
So it becomes then um, if if most of the stuff that's happening in the virtual world is visual, uh, because we know 80% of the information coming into us is, is visual. Um, but what I think will happen, I, I imagine, is that we'll suddenly become more in tune with those other 21 senses that are that's not sight and suddenly that becomes more and more important and um, because we a lot of these companies are doing a lot of research in the area of what it means to turn up presence is the holy grail of virtual reality um, and what does that mean for us um, it means really being present and feeling like you were there mm-hmm. now there's things that virtual reality does for us really well um, and empathy is one of them. It strikes a, a very nice chord in that. But that's that's something that can also be achieved through storytelling. Not to big ourselves too much, of course. But I think that's what you have to do on one's podcast. Um, I would say the, the 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 experience that that we offer to people here in the museum when they come in of um, of, of of getting to to, to sit and listen. Uh, to another person as the, as they tell you a story um, and and then telling you stories for a, a little part of your day, a little part of your afternoon, but still a, a significant amount of time, usually 45 minutes, an hour, um, is, is one of the more present and interactive and anti-hostile things you can actually do in Dublin City. Maybe without eating something. It's a pleasurable activity, in <laughs> in in my view, and the, you're really listened to as 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 a listener. I mean, the the, the big thing the storyteller's got to do mm. is listen to what the audience is telling them. Yes. Um, and even though the audience is not speaking, they are reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I or say, not reacting. Yeah, um, <laughs> and different cultures have different ways of reacting. Yes. Um, but you know when people are leaning in. You know, phrases like you could hear a pin drop, all of those things mean something because people are waiting on what's going to happen. And if you're being told a story, it's being told to you, so your presence is being valued. You're really there. People are really responding to you as you are in the space right now and who you're with. And everybody has a, everybody is valued at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all heard. Um they're observed, they're acknowledged. Um, that's not a bad place to be. So does that mean when you opened the museum or before when you're planning to open this museum, um, is that the, the, the sort of um, experience you were trying to you were trying to create more more presence, more storytelling, more um, where not only not only a place of, of value for Irish folklore and mythology, um, but a place where where where, where listening and um, and interaction and the real time conversation and presence was valued. I didn't know what we were doing. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> it, I couldn't work out why there were leprechauns in Ireland, um, and it 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 distracted me to a point of annoyance why there would be leprechauns in Ireland and nowhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it annoys men particularly oh. that there are leprechauns in Ireland or that we have some kind of affiliation to leprechauns. It's very uh, hot button. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I began to dig into it and I've gone, oh, well, that's really interesting. Oh, well, that's. And the more I dug into it, the more there was to find out. And eventually I came to the point where I said, well, if I find this interesting, maybe other people will find it interesting too. And then I was imagining how you might go about communicating with the people or offering them space to come in and begin to ask those same kind of questions. And maybe stories were a way to get through it. Um, and the one thing that storytelling allows us to do, it's a cheap form of art. Mm-hmm. You don't need a pen or a pencil or a camera or anything else. It's immediate. Um, and what it does, it begins to do a thing which you begin to look at things like um, tolerance of ambiguity. The story could go one way or the other way. Um, and you begin to be able to do things like uh, practice abstract patterning. What would happen if these other elements were added to the story? So it begins to operate a load of different potentials. Um, And I got this really good book, uh, Brian Boyd, on on the origins of storytelling. And his comment was, why would any society participate in art? Because 98% of art is failure. Um, and only 2% works. And his answer was, for the 2% that works, it's strategically significant for the society. Um, And um, years ago, I went to art college, and we were told by the lecturer who came in on the first day and said, Irish people are are visually illiterate. (laughs) Um, And he wasn't, at the time, he wasn't that far off the mark. But what we do is a folkloric tendency. We do spin a good story. Um, and for me, that's an art form that, you know, is is replicated in the pub, is replicated in those social uh, interactions that we have and the places we build for social interactions. So I, I guess a lifetime of dithering and a moment, a flash of inspiration. And then um, how would I say it? It seemed like the right thing to do at the time to build the museum. And here we are. And here we are. That makes no sense at all. <laughs> no, no, and uh, yes, and then all of the sense. Um, you said um, men, Irish men, get more hit up about leprechauns. Yeah, I think it's a size issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> leprechauns are probably the most famous men to come out of Ireland, and you too. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's, it's um, and they're not even Irish, which is the yeah. extraordinary thing. Well, that's a story for another day. <laughs> but speaking of stories, Eleanor. Oh. Now, you're the woman of the world. Oh, well. Yeah. Have you ever gone into a pub and come out legless, but with more money in your pocket than you went in with? Gosh, Tom, I can't say that I have. Well, I know a woman who knows a story about that. And here's Deirdre. And she's going to tell us the story of the three pigs, or the five pigs, of Monkstown. a man called Dan Kelly who worked on the railroad in Cork. Now he had an unfortunate supervisor, an English fellow by the name of Thomas. Now Thomas would bully Dan endlessly, saying he doesn't work as hard as the others do. Of course, Dan never liked working with him, but on a weird level they got along. 
A Cork man could understand an Englishman's sense of humour. It was shocking for the whole parish. Now, one afternoon, Thomas did ask Dan if he wanted to go for a walk close to Mungstown and cross over the River Lee. And as the two men went for a walk, they started to get to know each other a little bit better. But um, the further they went for this walk, they noticed in the distance a pig market was going on. They thought, oh, that'll be a bit of crack. Sure, there'll be a fair somewhere to have. But of course, the two men were getting there by foot. And as they were crossing over the bridge to get to the other side, what should go past them but three cars? They had money bags coming out of their wazoo. And of course, these three sellers decided it'd be rather funny to uh, drive over patches of muck and mud and dirt and spray those who are walking across the bridge. Now, unfortunately, Dan and Thomas were the ones that got caught in the crossfire. And uh, Thomas didn't seem too irritated by it. He walked over to the edge. He found a foxglove plant. Well, foxgloves, they're known to be the fairy thimbles. He picked out about five leaves and started to move them around in his hand and start to whisper at them. Now Dan, looking from afar, thought this was very odd altogether. But the two men turned and looked at each other. He says, Dan, wait here a minute. Those cars are going to be by again in about ten minutes. Get for me two hazel rods. I've got something cooking. So, Dan thought this unusual, but he found two hazel rods, and when he turned around again, Thomas wasn't holding five leaves. He was now babysitting five voluptuous pigs. Oh, the colours in their skin, the tufts of hair. He'd never seen animals that big before. He cried, where do these creatures come from? Ah, Dan, don't be asking questions you don't want the answers to. Just get these up the market way. So, with the hazel rod in each hand, the men carried the pigs and moved them up to the market. And this sort of caused a wee bit of a traffic jam about a quarter mile down the road. Just so happened to meet those friendly faces from earlier. And the men jumped out of the cars. Oh, are yous really causing us a road blockage? Oh, I'm trying to get to market. I've got things to buy. Well, Tom turned around and said, Sure, if you're interested, these five pigs are for sale. And uh, they're bacon pigs. And you know they're a rare breed this time of year. Of course, our buyers were a little bit keen. Hmm, I'll give you £18 for the lot of them. I can't do 18 Thomas says. I can give you 25 know how much money how far i can get on 25 pounds well sir if you want my five pigs they're going to cost you 25 pounds if you don't want to spend the 25 pounds you're going to be waiting there for at least another hour to get to market he says fine fine give me those pigs and there's your money and out of the kindness of tom's heart he gave him back 10 shilling just as a wee thank you but uh, Dan was watching on from behind Tom and wondering, how did the sale take place? He hadn't seen these animals until he turned around with the hazel rods in his hand. But Tom did have news for Dan. He waited till the men and the pigs were about two miles away. 
we must be very, very quiet, Dan. And we must walk extremely quickly. We have to retrace our steps because the moment that those pigs touch any kind of water, they'll be back to leaves. So we best leave now. So the two men retraced their steps, crossed over bridges down through the cartways, past the railways as well. But they couldn't help themselves. They had to go to a local pub. They'd been walking off for all the afternoon to see the great harbours of Cork and to see the River Lee itself. So they decided, ah, one drink, one heart. So the two men walk into the back room of this small pub. And not only 20 minutes later was there absolute chaos at the front desk. It was the buyers from earlier on. Are they here? Are they here? You're looking for a little fellow with a limp and a bigger fellow with notions. He's an Englishman with the name of Thomas. What kind of creature is that? Now, of course, the owner behind the pub says, Look, two lads walked in earlier on, merry as anything can be. Hang on, is one of them ginger and the other one with blonde hair? And they cried, I think they were. They were covered in muck the last time we saw them. Oh, I know the lads. Follow me, they're in the back room. So, the buyers from earlier approached these two smiling, smiling sellers. And uh, the smiles quickly turned sour, though, because the men were outraged. Not only three miles after meeting Dan and Tom did the pigs walk into a stream. One decided it'd be very fun to play in a puddle and another decided it'd be very fun to see what would happen if it jumped off a bridge and landed straight into the river itself. And needless to say, all these men had in their hands were mouldy, wet, disgusting leaves. They demanded their money back from Dan and Thomas. But of course, Dan and Thomas had half the money drunk by the stage being in the pub. But this caused mayhem as one of the buyers threw out his cane and began to hit the two men. And then carnage became broken glass everywhere, furniture turned upside down, to hands screaming, just stop, just stop. We don't want to start an even bigger fight. We don't want to ruin the pub. It's the only one in town. But unfortunately, this did catch the eye of the bar owner. He says, men... Or should I call you, boys? Is it time for me to call the police on you? Now, of course. Let's say those uh, men who thought they were buying pork scratchings but really bought five leaves of a foxglove plant, they realised something. If the police were going to get called, so were their own personal records. They thought for their own interest to chuck the guys an extra five pounds for another round of drinks and to run out of that place as fast as they could. So I just want to point out an actual inaccuracy in the story. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, so Deirdre, Deirdre's obviously unfamiliar with men going to the pub. She said they needed an excuse to go to the pub that was hot. Men need no excuse <laughs> to go to the pub. It was not a buy the buy. They had 25, 20 odd pounds in their pocket. And to the pub they were going. And there would have been no hesitation and no waiting around for anybody to the pub they would have gone. Mm-hmm. I thought it was listening to it this time around. Um 
I, I was wondering if it was some sort of like storytelling trope. I found it very funny that these two guys had these these twenty five pounds, which had been a lot of money, and they were um, had intended all the while to go to the fair, and then they 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 found this pub, and oh, they just couldn't help themselves. They found their feet taking them there, and oh, the familiar foe. Uh, but no, that makes a lot more sense. They were heading to the pub. And also, I've been in that pub. Oh yeah, and in the back room there, the ceiling is about six and a half foot. So uh, every time your man tried to beat down them, the stick wouldn't go any higher. <laughs> so there wasn't it wasn't a, I'd say it was more noise than anything else. Yeah, yeah. So that's just another by the by. Thank you, Tom. Our apologies to our listeners for that uh, factual inaccuracy in Deirdre's story. But wasn't it a great telling? I was here, actually, I happened to be here when Deirdre was recording that story. And, um, and God, it was, it, it was great to watch. She had her eyes closed for most of it, which I've never really seen her do before. But um, <laughs> she looked like a, like a Shano singer or something. All right. Um, but it was, it was great to see her in the zone. Yeah. You know, imagining it all playing out in her head, presumably. Well, that's it, and that's that's what you're doing, creating images and telling the story out of the images in your head and yeah. sparking images in other people's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, the going to the going to the fair, um, I suppose, and the, well, first of all, they're building the railroad. Yes. So that would give you an approximate date, I guess, of when the story would have taken place. Yes, sort of um, around the 1850s. I guess, um, and obviously, Cork is a very important. Um, Port Town, so it would have been the, one of the first places, I guess, yeah. they got a railway. Needed a railroad. The story is from Cork and then south to Cork, down on the Lee into Monkstown. So that puts it. And then if they were crossing over, there was a narrowness there, which is probably the bridge over the Own Bui River. Okay. So I reckon that's where they were. And there was a pub, there was a pub on the way into Monkstown then. That's probably where they... they, they Retired to after scoring their 25, 20 or twenty five pounds. We'll have to head there on a field trip sometime. We will. We yes, and may not come back. Um, <laughs> and then what else? Oh, so um, one of the things they did use was the foxglove. Yes. Um, and this would be, as you well know, a very important um, plant in um, the folklore of Ireland mm-hmm. and other countries, and it's a fairy plant. Um, and it's often said that if you saw that uh, if there wasn't a breath of wind out you'd still see the fox club nodding um, in respect of the fairies as they walked by yes um, but it has um, obviously medicinal qualities digitalis mm-hmm. and uh, so I reckon it was probably viewed with a circumspect eye yes it was because um, much of it is, is, is poisonous isn't it or all of it Though the, the the digitalis has an effect on your heart, yes. So and it's used as a medicine mm-hmm. um, in in certain quantities. So one would know have to know what level of quantities are efficacious and which are poisonous. <laughs> um, it's known as it's called lusmore in Irish folklore, but it's also called uh, lusnaman, a lusnaman she. Okay, well there you yes. go. Yeah. Yes, the herb of the, the fairy woman. Yeah. And also known as a fairy's thimble. And if you've ever seen foxglove, it, it doesn't look like a thimble. You could see a... Um, or a foxglove. Or a foxglove, yes. But um, I think I read also that, um, you know, even though it, 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 in English it's called a foxglove, that doesn't really come from 
um, Fox the animal, but more uh, folks, and folks meet would have um, been used to mean fairies. Yeah, okay. To refer to the fairies. And glove coming from uh, glue. Uh, not glue the adhesive, but um, I think it was glue as in plant or glue as in magic. Okay, wow. That's news to me. Thank you oh. for that. The oh, well, other plant that was knowledge. the plant that was mentioned was the um, the hazel. Yes, um, with Dan going and fetching the hazel rods. Hazel rods um, being mentioned in other stories as well, having a sort of um, magic property or or focusing someone's magic, a bit like a wand. Yeah, and. Mm-hmm. Also, if it's divining, you're using a hazel twig mm-hmm. for water divining. Yeah. Water is mentioned then as the pigs uh, touch water. And I think it's particularly to do with flowing water. Oh, yeah? So I think as soon as witches and ghosts and spirits can't cross flowing water because they're tied to the land that they come mm-hmm. from. So, And in the story of, um, uh, as people might know, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm. Dracula can't cross the sea, so they have to bring soil in the coffin beneath him, so that he's not travelling past his own boundaries. Amazing. So he's still touching soil. Still touching, touching the soil of Transylvania. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's where the point at which the pigs are going to transform back to their original form yeah. in, into the leaves. Um, and the other one that Deirdre carefully mentioned was a car. And that's short for the jaunting car. Oh, not the motor car. Not the motor car. So the jaunting car was uh, a particular uh, type of, of vehicle used, especially in Ireland. And you still get them in the southwest. And Jarvie or jaunt. So you might hear the Jarvies of um, the what the, the um, in the Ring of Kerry, mm-hmm. where um, so essentially it's a driver up front, and then the seats face. Uh, are situated over the wheels and the passengers sit facing outwards to the side of the road so you can look down on everyone as you go by <laughs> um, and if the boys were driving the pigs by foot mm-hmm. um, I suppose the Jarvies would be complaining well, what's the point in having a, a, a fancy horse and a fancy uh, car and not being able to jaunt past all these pigs all if these you're still going to be and, stuck in a traffic jam yeah. you might as well be walking yeah but uh, they were protected from the, the the muck and the mud on the road. Oh well, they had they were sitting on the mud guard really. Oh yes. So the mud guard was specifically made to sit on, and that protected them. Well, I have a question. Another question about uh, the foxglove leaves, which is that the, these three guys bought these five pigs from our heroes, and uh, at some point the the pigs touched water. I decided to do a bit of synchronized swimming. They turned into the leaves. Uh, we don't know. Um, I guess the, the the people who bought the pigs would have seen this happening, or they turned around. Five pigs were missing, and these foxglove leaves were uh, were all that's left. And I was wondering if they knew that the to bring back the leaves and throw them in the guys' faces and say, "You gave us pig." pigs but now we have leaves has this happened before has this happened before in Mogstown what's up with these fox gloves well it's not the first time that people have been turned into pigs either and mm. um, like the black pig's dyke black pig's dyke then um, Dimmer Dinah 
Yes. Uh, that was his childhood friend. That was the boar who brought him to an end as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the other story of Lou uh, and the three pigs. Yeah, they were turned into pigs. When he was coming back, he found his father turned into a pig. Um, so there is that magical element to it. Um, I, and pig markets, I mean... The boys were walking down the road and got covered in muck. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's a fair amount of muck on the road if people <laughs> were driving pigs, mm-hmm. yeah, to the market. Um, and, and you see in Irish muck being the Irish word for pig. It is indeed. Maybe that gave him the idea. Could be. Um, so I enjoyed it, and I thought there were some some really nice parts to it. Um, that it bound up all those elements together. Used the available materials that are on the side of the road. It's a river, the yep. bridge. You've got the foxgloves growing. You've got a hazel uh, twigs growing everywhere. Anywhere there's water, you're going to get a bit of hazel mm. nearby. So all of those things brought together. And then suddenly we're all in the pub and then all mayhem breaks loose. Mm-hmm. Um, but the boys uh, did walk out with more money in the end. They did. Yeah. So that was a, that's, a, that's a nice billop to the mm-hmm. story, I guess. There's a, a serious fight or any serious harm is averted. Um, and our heroes get to have their pints, they get to have more money, they get to walk away, having got one up on the lads who sprayed all that mud on them, and and we're happy. I would be annoyed if I'd have gone out and bought a pig and it turned out to be just a leaf. You'd, you'd need to, I suppose you'd be so annoyed you probably would go back and look for the person. Yeah. But I'd also be a bit wary that, that they could turn pig leaves into pigs. Yeah. What, what are they going to do to me? Yeah. The fact that they were in the pub, I suppose, would diminish their magical abilities if yeah. they consumed a few pints. They might not, <laughs> they might not point their wand in the right direction. Yeah. So I, I kind of go, yeah. But it, in those days, I'm sure 20, 20 quid was a lot of money. Oh yes. So, um, and what else about that story? Um, the uh, the the relationship between the two characters is interesting. One is egging the other on. Mm-hmm. Um, although the person you know the guy being egged on doesn't mind ending up in the pub at the end of it no um, and uh, I don't know what he's doing but it seems to be working yes <laughs> so exactly. we'll keep on going with that um, and of course the, the guy who ends up um, bringing all this about is an English lad and an English guy and the way Deirdre addresses it at the start like he was English and he was really mean but they tolerated him all the same this, they got him very well. This cork man could understand this Englishman's If humor. they were building the railways, perhaps he was um, had some experience elsewhere in yeah. building the railway, and that may be the reason they were all working together. Yeah. Um, and he, he had a supervisory position, like a ganger man mm. on the railways. Then, obviously, um, if you're working under someone like that, you'd want to keep on their good side. Ah, yeah. Makes sense that Dan is going to do what he says, what Tom says. Shinae. And Deirdre tells us she's a great way of, um, especially in person as well, that, and so much of it can only be captured on a device or a medium like this. Um, the, the way Deirdre can make you feel as a storyteller is a very powerful thing. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and uh, you're saying she's closing her eyes, you can't see that on on a podcast no. um, and, or, or the way she'd lean into or yeah, reach out and give you the hand on, 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 on the forearm to, yeah. Yeah, to, to, guide, to guide your Snapping imagination or... to, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that's that's all the immediacy of storytelling. That's and that's the presence of the person doing it. And no one can do it the same way that Deirdre does it. And you could redo that story with Deirdre and all the conditions the same and there'd be a different emphasis. She'd be choosing different words mm-hmm. at different points because they made more sense to her in the way that she was sequencing the story out. Yeah. So just like the pigs fell into the river and disappeared, so the story can never be repeated. No, not like this. Um, I think it's interesting there's five pigs uh, rather than three because three is a typically Irish thing. There'd always be three I of everything. I think that but the the five pigs remind me of the five little piggies, yeah. Um, and it's just this this little piggy went to market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's something there. And, and sometimes when you're telling a story, you're looking for ways for people to get into the story. And often we remember stuff uh, kind of non cognitively. I'd be bubbling underneath the surface. Yeah. And we won't know why we know it or why we like it or lean into something. Um, and it's just those little nuances, those little clues to get in. And obviously, when they're telling these stories um, and all of those things like the flowing river, the, the, the hazel rod, the, the fox club, these are things that people would have seen every day. Yes. Um, the, the, the jaunting car gone by, uh, having to stand to the side of the road to make way for the jaunting car on a narrow country road or getting held up by somebody going to market mm-hmm. with their pigs and having to avoid standing in cow... Uh, pig splatter everywhere you went um, so this uh, for us is slightly removed from our day to day experience it is at this stage yeah and I think there's there's um, there's nothing like it when you go on your holidays to the country and everything just slows down a few notches Yeah. and it takes about a week for you to get over your city mentality <laughs> and begin to settle into the country rhythms and then begin to observe things in the country. Mm. And it's not until the end of the second week when you're going home that actually you found your stride. Yeah. yeah. And, and the third week the third week that you could have had but didn't because you were afraid of things going awry at work or someone taking your job. Mm. Um, that's really when the magic would have happened. Oh, speaking of which, I was meaning to ask, hey, can I have three weeks off to go to the country? Yeah, can Yay! indeed. <laughs> <laughs> to do a bit of research. Yeah. There's a pub down in Monkstown that, that needs checking out. I, I think on that note, we'll leave it there for today, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Eleanor. Uh, for this episode of the podcast. And I hope it won't be too long before you come and join us again. Good morning, and the one thing to notice is that Eleanor is going to be leaving us soon. So she'll be going into the wide world, taking on more acting roles. <laughs> um, but she'll be going out as a fully-fledged storyteller, both in person and online. And we wish her really well. And she has done a great job for us over the past two years now, is yeah. it? Um, so it's been really wonderful working with you. I've loved the way that you've developed your skill set um, and the way you've engaged with everybody here. And I'm delighted, you know, everybody leaves at some point. So I'm delighted that you're going on to do what you really want to do. And that hopefully you'll take a bit of the magic from here and add your own to it and spread the word. Thank you so much, Tom. That means so, so much. Um, yeah, I have, uh, I've loved being here. Um, I've loved developing as a storyteller, especially over over the past couple of months and getting to really... Um, uh, 
uh, immerse myself in it and I'm going to miss the museum a lot and I'm going to miss our conversations actually the weirdness of it all yes, <laughs> yes. Um, well thank you so much for listening folks um, if you're not already following this podcast or subscribing uh, please do to get uh, new episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month and if you enjoyed this episode um, why not share with a friend or post about it online or however you'd like to tell people about it thank you so much um, I don't know if I'll be on the next episode <laughs> Woohoo. Well, this is, uh, we'll have to get you in for one more ah uh, yeah and uh, maybe please. maybe sometime in the future that would you be might come back in and <laughs> share with us some of the stories you've experienced along the way that would be wonderful Thank you so much. Goodbye. 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 (laughs) This episode of National Leprechaun Museum Talking Stories features Eleanor Walsh and Tom O'Rahilly. The Five Pigs of Monkstown was told by Deirdre Quinn. Thanks for listening. Slán